Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Gala Mulamolova. <laughs> okay, Mukamolova here in the studio. And um, Gala, thank you for being patient with me with. Uh, 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 Lessons. The name journey. Yeah, yeah, the name journey. The name yeah. journey. Um, hi, everyone. This is Gala. Um, I will say that I definitely made tea nervous by just like presenting her with four different versions of my last name that she could choose from. So, of course, it ended with just the <laughs> last name soup. And <laughs> <laughs> And I'm looking at my notes here like, why did you, why? Why did you do this here? Um, it's hard. But it's so great to see you. And welcome back to Ann Arbor. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. It's been a few years now, yeah. um, right? So this is a little bit of a homecoming, like, to do uh, the Zell reading mm -hmm. t tomorrow, Thursday. That's true. It, it definitely feels sort of surreal to be back I think. <laughs> and it's like yeah. a random heat wave. It's hotter right. here than in New York. I'm woefully unprepared for that amount of heat and all the outfit choices I thought I was going to have. <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. And it's great to see you. And, you. and a stunning outfit it is. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> but, um, before we go any further, um, I'll, I'll read your bio in the back of your book, Without mm -hmm. Protection, out this year with Coffee House Press, your first book, your debut collection. It's true. Um, you've, uh, well, I'll read the back because we'll mm -hmm. hear about the chapbook in this, I think. Yeah. Gala Mukomolova earned an MFA from the University of Michigan. She is the author of the chapbook, One Above, One Below, Positions and Lamentations, um, out with Yes, Yes Books 2018. And her work has appeared in Pen America, Poetry, Pank, Vinyl, and elsewhere. In 2016, Mukomolova won the 92nd Street Y Discovery Boston Review Poetry Prize. And it's so good to see you here today. Me too. Thanks for being here, Gala. Thank um, you. So this, okay, so this book of yours, mm -hmm. um, can we talk about sort of the the time in the making and it's, and maybe a little bit, because uh, we're going to talk about themes that are within it, the fairy tales, mm -hmm. the um, influence, well, Russian fairy tales, mm -hmm. and the, the place, the forest, Brighton Beach is mm -hmm. a place, um, the imagination. It is a place. <laughs> It is a place. <laughs> Over to you, Gala. <laughs> um, but what would you like to talk? I feel like I need you to lead me into the forest here. The, well, <laughs> the poems in the making, because the chapbook, were those the poems that were centered um, more around some of the fairy tale aspects mm. of, of this book without protection? But now they're within a new forest with yeah. other poems i feel like i'm almost positive although honestly again like the black hole of my mind but i'm almost positive that the chapbook doesn't have fairy tales in it and i think that um the making of this book was a long time and i it began when I was in the program here at University of Michigan, and uh, so I had this manuscript, and um, I think that at the time I was like calling it Rabbit Light, um, which is um, well Stevens like, uh, and it's about like all all of night for you is a kind of rabbit light, something like that. So it's about a kind of liminal darkness space where all the animals come out, uh, and. 
which is funny because I like I definitely had some people telling me that I shouldn't be quoting him because of the difference in our I don't know something um but I then after I finished the program and I had all these poems that were actually um a grief process for me like a lot of the fairy tale poems um had to do with me uh figuring out a way to uh, maybe like a follow old strands inside my mind, like programs inside my mind that led me back to a sense of core. Um, what is the word? Uh, where you originate from uh, the, the noun for that, <laughs> like an origin. <laughs> yeah. Like an origin or place. Because when I got to the university, when I got to my MFA program, uh, my dad died within like a month of me being here and he was my uh, primary caregiver in many ways. So for me, he was like a huge link to my sense of origin. So I think that a lot of the work that I started to do around Russian fairy tale was about uh, retelling a different story for myself so that I could situate myself inside of it and see it clearly and understand myself in a new way. And then when I um, finished the program, I started a different project. And the project um, spurred out of a friend's husband's question from me. And the question was, one day we were having dinner and he just looked at me and he was like, how did like your sexual self come to be? And he didn't mean it in terms of like identity orientation. He meant sort of like the knowing oneself as a sexual self. Um, and I think that really got me thinking about women and um, at what point, how early on we're already trained to see ourselves as sexual objects, even before we ourselves are sexual or even understand what that means for us. We know that what it means for us in terms of danger or in terms of um, like the kind of periphery that is drawn around us. And I think that um, that really interested in me and uh, interested me to track it. So I started doing this meditative project where every day I would wake up and this is like mostly during my Zelle year. Um, and I would write one of two things. It was either going to be um, a memory of a moment that I thought that I felt like my sexual self was being drawn or like for me or taught to me or shown to me, or I was going to write something from a present, a, a closer present day moment in my life where I felt those moments coming up in me, like the past moments coming up in me. So it was, it was two manuscripts. And when I started working with coffee house press, they asked, they like, they challenged me to see what I could do to make it into one project. And it felt right. And I understood why they wove together because they informed each other. So the chapbook was more of just the second project. And so in your process, when you were challenged with that, mm -hmm. and thank goodness you took up the challenge too. That's, um, it reminds me of the titles of one of your, the title of one of your poems, the key to all locks is a fearless heart. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it looks, so if, if we're looking at how the book is built, um, if you've got like the, the, you know, the title, I love how it starts here in, it mm -hmm. feels like epic or fairy tale like mm -hmm. and and then the first one is the heroine and the witch um which precedes that then there's like a like a 
two um, black pages without protection, the title of the collection. Then we move forward. We like to, to call like, that a black flood. A black flood. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Great. <laughs> and who's the we? Just everyone uh, in no, the publishing No, world? no, no, no. It was like, um, I, I, this is part of my like pleasure of working with coffee houses that they were so um, attuned to my aesthetic desires and I really like and we had to figure out page numbers but I just really loved when they sent me samples of of the pages being flooded with blackness and I thought that was so great as a visual experience for the reader so I just wanted to underline the the flooding because I think it's <laughs> I like it <laughs> yeah and and how amazing coffee house press are mm-hmm. um, a s- small uh, independent press um, doing great work um, and finding great voices to yeah. to get out in the world um, but back to the structure because yes. so how did you decide then to have the heroine and the witch as like because this is then the like a lens it mm-hmm. seems like by the structure that you invite the reader mm-hmm. to look at the what's to come yeah i mean i think that um i mean i there's so many ways I can answer this and I can pretend that this is like the one, one truth, although there's probably <laughs> many different kinds of truth. And like one easy truth is that um, it makes it easier for my reader, which I don't hate, to actually have a context for the kinds of different structures that they're going to encounter. Right. So it makes it easier for them to have some kind of framework to enter a story. Um, a kind of more expansive or flexible truth is that we all as young people, unless some kind of outlandish circumstance, often begin our reading life, our language life with fairy tales. So in fact, many of us have these different kinds of lens with which we enter all other interactions and languages. So it's fair to say that entering a story with like a, a fairy tale framework is very similar to just being alive. And so earlier you were saying your is this right? Your dad used to tell you fairy tales, like from your your Russian heritage. I mean, I would say that I I honestly I don't. It's like, <laughs> I was like, where do these facts come from? Um, I don't know who taught who said anything to me. Like so, um, I definitely had exposure to fairy tales. Uh, I would say that my narrative memory of my childhood is very fractured and that um, when I see fairy tales, whether they be animated like from the old Soviet um, films or whether or not I'm hearing them or reading them, they are deeply familiar to me. But um, inherently, any of the details I've had to relearn myself uh, because by the time that we were in America, we no longer shared a language. And so actually, I was not really read to as a child. And um, I don't, I wasn't really told many stories as a child as well either. Up in, like, so maybe before we came when I was five. Right. But I don't remember that. And when you say we didn't share a language, was that because once you came at, at six years old, you were being more, you were surrounded obviously by 
English mm-hmm. now, and that was maybe more affecting I mean, I how think you developed. There was more pressure to assimilate in a in a in an educational system. Then, like I think I've worked in educational systems now where they will have dual language um, for immigrant students, where they also go to classrooms to work with like Russian speakers. When I came to America and I went to public school, all the ESL kids were just put into a room and made to watch American movies. For hours until we figured it out. That's what I remember. I remember like sitting in a room with many different ESL students, not all of them Russian, like kids that were Asian and black. And like, and we were all just like watching like Peter and the Wolf, you know, <laughs> and meant to sort of map the language yeah. onto. <laughs> wow. So you're like, and I'm going to have to start carrying around a clarinet with me too, or an oboe or something. I right? mean, I'm not sh- I just, I actually, um, my mother, one story that I do have is that my mother has told me that when we got to America, that for the first year, I didn't speak at all. Like, so I didn't speak any language. I just absorbed. And then she describes it as like an eruption of English that happened like a year later when I began to speak again. And so when you started writing, was it also like, was it a similar eruption of sorts? Or how did going back to your beginnings of being a writer or feeling poems? I mean, as a kid, I definitely wrote a whole lot. But I also just, I was a voracious reader. So I think that I was a, like, I would go, I didn't, I was a very sedentary child. I was a little chubby because we discovered cereal when we got here. And that was very exciting for the whole family. And my mom thought ginger ale was healthy. So I basically just sat around all day long and I would go to the library and with my dad and he would help me carry back like 15 stacks of books. (laughs) I mean, 15 books like in stacks. And I would just read them all weekend long and I would finish them. So that's all I did with my time as I just read. And I read way beyond my grade average until I think that I felt um, empowered to to write things down. I think in your notes section, you mentioned even reading Danielle Steele because it was like right there in the YA section. Yeah, it was just right there. (laughs) So you're like, I will read all of those. Yeah, I was was a really um, precocious child. So and I was left alone and nobody monitored me because nobody spoke English or read English. So I actually had a lot of freedom to corrupt my mind all the time. And I read a lot of very traumatic books because I would just be like, ooh, uh, an abuse narrative. I'll (laughs) be like nine. So yeah, definitely, definitely some Danielle Steele in there. And and you had your own desk, like in the house that you had or the apartment. It sounds Mm -hmm. like it was like potentially small, but you had a space that was your your desk. Yeah, I had a desk. I did not have, like, I didn't have my own room until I was maybe like a 15 year old or something like that. Um, but I had, I had like a desk that I, I got like, but not right away. At first I used to work at the kitchen table and, um, we all like my dad and my mom slept in the big bed and I slept in a tiny sort of fold out chair, um, by like by them. And, um, I worked in the kitchen and then I think around the age of maybe eight or so, like so a couple of years in, we got like a giant desk from Staples. And that was that was my that was actually the only place that was mine in the whole apartment, I think, was just this desk. But I would still find the other people's things in it, as, as, as families are. If there are drawers, yeah. there will be things yeah. put into them. <laughs> Today on the program, Gala Mukamolova is here. Her book out with Coffee help House Press without protection. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got text behind the glass, and we'll be back. Cool. 
You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Gala Mukomolova is here without protection. The book on the table with us, the debut collection from Gala. Um, thank you so much for picking today's songs. It You're was welcome. like a shame to almost stop that one. <laughs> um, okay. So why, could you tell us a little bit about why this one? Um, all right. So it's, I'm like imagining people are just like listening to Michelle. So I don't know how Michelle Guerovich came to me. Uh, I almost feel like it, it might have been from my friend Karina Vahitova, who's also a fabulous um, Ukrainian poet. But I think that we, all of us um, post-Soviet queers out there are always looking for like other post like post-Soviet queer production, and um, I do my best to find it because it um, is a testament to survival in a lot of ways, especially with what's been happening in um, in Russia and in and like um, just Czechoslovakia and all over. And I think that um, I just for us this this musician is so riveting and exciting because she sings in English. So she's accessible to our friends. And this one song that I picked, which is called Russian romance is so funny. And I think that Russian people have this like sense of self deprecating humor just about our own nature. So, um, in the song, there's this part where Michelle sings something like faced with your darkest nature. Like I will be waiting for you there, you know? And I'm like, yeah, like that's, I think, it's just that's it, Russian romance. It is, and it's funny because just recently I was spending time with a, a new queer friend who's Russian, Polina, and I think I just told her that like there's just that when I like like there's been times when I've been in love with a woman, and I just like wanted to die at her feet, and she was like, "Oh yes, you have a Russian soul," <laughs> you know. And I just I think that there's this common understanding that. Um, Russian people are very intense and sort of. Um, but their intensity is not precious to them. So there's a way in which they can sort of inhabit intensity and also um, accept loss with the same amount of um, presence. You know, so they could just be like, oh, I die for this. And then somebody is gone and they're just like, oh, they are gone. Life goes on. You see, <laughs> you know, and it's very like. I'll look, I don't know. It's very even keel across the board in that one, <laughs> but potentially not on the inside. I Maybe don't know. on the exterior, or do you think it's? Just- I'm not sure. I mean, I have this really um, old friend of mine who um, I like to joke is more off the boat than me. Although I'm sure she will love me saying that. Um, and she came over here when she was 14. 
So I do feel that way about her. Like she was socialized um, in St. Petersburg. And, you know, like we'll get together and she'll just be like, we'll just talk about something really painful or hard and, you know, or just doomed love affairs or whatever. And at some point she'll just turn to me and she'll be like, Kelly, you know what? And I'm like, what? She's like, do you know that the French people, they used to wear wigs with the rats in them. We don't have to do that. (laughs) You know, and I'm just like, okay, thank you. She's like, they used to shit right inside of their, <laughs> inside of their armors. And I'd be like, oh, she's like, so she's like, so you, we, we don't have it so bad. <laughs> exactly. Um, buck up, chin up or yeah. something. <laughs> so there is like, it, inside it seems very similar to outside. <laughs> I don't know. Well, oh, let's okay for a quick moment. Then mm-hmm. let's talk about the outside of the book mm-hmm. um, because the cover was really also important. To, I mean, as covers, yeah, really should are. be right. But sometimes writers poets you don't get a chance to mm-hmm. say. Um, but your experience was really different with Coffee House. Oh yeah, I, they were so. I mean, like I am really grateful to my editors for working with me on the text. But I think that I really began to understand just how lucky I was to work with Coffee House Press when they got to witness how picky I was about my cover. And um, and I mean, they were very open to my image suggestions, but also like the number of times we shifted the image to one side, or like the number of times that the title changed slightly, or the text had to change or the colors around the text and I was just constantly and where you would break the word because that's yeah. interesting well, um I think that that was, I mean, I did not design it. I just kept, like, I just kept saying no or yes over and over. I did choose the image, and the image is actually um, by a Polish photographer named Marcin Nagraba, and that is his mother. Um, And he takes these fantastical photos of his mother, um, and the... And I think I found him, if I'm not mistaken, because the crown that she is photographed in is by another like um, Soviet, like post-Soviet artisan who makes these elaborate um, crowns and um, other kinds of artistic design lingerie things. And a friend of mine who I also met on the internet as like another post-Soviet queer whose book I read, um, Sonia Vatomsky, who I wrote to after I read their book, um, Saltus for Curing. And then I was like, we have to do something together. And so we became internet friends, but they got married and um, they ordered one of these crowns. So they were wearing one of these crowns for their wedding. And I think that that became the chain of sort of <laughs> the connection to what, to what led me to to his um, beautiful work. And I just thought it'd be so fun and creepy to have an old, beautiful woman on the cover. With a, with a rabbit in her yeah. lap. And w- well, this is so interesting. So as a one reader... Mm-hmm. Um, and after reading like the first the the poem that's like kind of the lens like the beginning poem, mm-hmm. I thought this was maybe Baba from the fairy tale. Yeah, I mean it's sort of the um, intimated. So thing. can can we talk about Baba and then sure. also um, Vasilisa and sure. Um, well, so one thing that I think that some American readers might not know—not um, even readers of my book, but readers of um, different. I don't know, current circulating texts that mention Baba Yaga is that there actually, as far as I know, are no books where she, that are about her or where she's the main character um, outside of 
theory, which is to say there is no fairy tale that's like the fairy tale of Baba Yaga. She is a reoccurring Russian character, um, which stands to reason then that her character or some form of her character is inherited from pre-language because a lot of Russian fairy tale is actually remnants of old different um, pagan belief systems from the agricultural people that live there. And um, there are many people who have um, done this work and have linked uh, Baba Yaga to the archetype of the mother maiden crone and actually have um, stated that there are old versions of these fairy tales where she had sisters that were of different ages and they used to all like eat these blue roses to stay young and um, and of course like she you know, eats children um, of but, course of course she eats children <laughs> but you know what like I just think that the the myth of sort of the the mystical wise healer woman who eats children is so prevalent in so many different cultures and um, could also be another iteration of say Lilith right who was said to steal babies and so people protected their children from this um, supposed demon who's also the first woman ever and just you know didn't want to be a wife <laughs> so there and Bobby God is also never a wife so there are um, you know goddess archetypes that um, the more that you follow the the breadcrumb trail will show up and then you can see why they're related or how they could have maybe at one point all all originated from similar places right right and maybe even in uh, it seems like in without protection why Vasalisa shouldn't fear her Mm -hmm. because there's something about the power that's like in the strength or so Mm -hmm. that's also it's well it's empowering for like the idea of this gender instead of thinking of something like definitely a demon or or Mm -hmm. a monster woman Mm -hmm. it's it's a woman with with power I mean, I'll also say that maybe she is a demon, you know, <laughs> but it's like, maybe she's a demon. Like what's, what's you know, wrong with demons? What's wrong with a little demon? Um, I, and magic. And, it's yeah. fine. But, you know, so in Russian fairy tales, she, Vasilisa is rarely scared of Baba Yaga. And one of the reasons is that she's actually a reoccurring character that many heroes and heroines are sent to. So, um, they're always sent to her. <laughs> They're always told to go to her and ask her the questions. She seems to know everything about the world beyond the veil. And so a lot of the Vasilisa stories actually are structured, of course, around a girl with like a beloved father and some terrible stepmother. Like that's very common. And so she, um, her father's gone or he dies or whatever. And she's left with this terrible family. We all know this fairy tale structure. And at some point, the stepsisters want to get rid of her. The stepmother wants to get rid of her. And so they send her to Bobby Goss Forest. The funny thing is that Bobby Goss supposedly like related to the, anyway, she's related to that family, which is another interesting aspect. But anyway, Vasilisa, who's just like so pure and good in heart, um, and which is, I think, goodness is um, not explained here. People just know that she, there's a goodness in her. That when she goes to Baba Yaga's um, house and she's sent there to get fire, like the basically they trick her, they 
they eliminate, like they extinguish all the fire in the house and they say, go and get some fire. We need fire. So she goes into the forest and she encounters all these different creatures and objects that are sentient and she helps them. So she, she treats them as worthy of her attention and nurturance and care. And in return, they allow, they give her tools, um, to, uh, complete the tasks Bobby Yaga gives her. So Bobby Yaga is not this demon that just comes out of her like animated house and eats people. She comes out and she's just like, find some, find some seeds in this dirt, <laughs> uh, you know, go through this hay and find a needle, things like that. And then um, what happens is that all like this cat that she helped, these birds, they all help her do these things. That's just one version of the story. In another one, there's an enchanted doll. That's fine to not go into it. But what was the moment you found these two reoccurring characters and you were like, these are the ones mm-hmm. for for me in this moment because it's helping to process the grief or to or to um, make a space for myself within this story tradition or heritage? I just think that I was really interested in inherited archetypes, right? Because Vasilisa, there's actually a number of versions of her and they're not the same girl and they, she doesn't have the same storyline. Inherently, the only thing that is the same is the fact that she believes that her quest is worthy and that she will um, be helped and that she will like find the answers that so she's she, seeking. So she could become yours. Yeah, openly mm-hmm. because that's what she's been doing <laughs> yeah and then with Bobby Yaga it's kind of the same where they're linked you know so they're not separate beings in many ways um, you could imagine that eventually Vasisa could grow up to become her I don't think that in my mind that they're just these uh, separate entities in the universe because they're endless right yeah. as they are yeah today on the program Gala Mukamalova is here without protection I'm T Hetzel you've got living writers we'll be back Doing my best 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm so glad you did. Today on the program, Gala is here. Gala Mukomolova, the book, her first book of poems, uh, Without Protection, out with Coffeehouse Press. Um, thanks to Claire and to Daly um, for sending books. Um, yeah, it's, and it's been so, f- thanks for also talking about the press, because I think it's interesting to hear about a writer's experience working with an, mm-hmm. an independent press. So thanks, Scala. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, I'm happy to talk about it. And, uh, well, and fairy tales and magic. We'll get to the astrology, hopefully, oh, yeah. too. Sure, if we do. Um, and rabbits, your love yeah, of rabbits. I, oh, it's like, that's a funny thing, my love of rabbits. Because is it love? See, that I was just throwing it out there sort of as a hidden question. Oh, yeah. I could, I could, feel, I could feel the question hiding within. I feel like... Um, my love, I, I love all animals. I love all animals. Even I'm highly allergic to cats, and I also love them, but I do not touch them. Um, Me too. Yeah, I love, <laughs> I love all animals. I think that one thing about rabbits is that I really like them in the wild, and I like to see them, or I like to see them free. Like I've never wanted to have a rabbit, and I'm not very interested in looking at rabbits in cages. Um, but. I think more than loving rabbits, which, you know, I really appreciate them because they have those funny mouths that open up into quarters, which is great. And they move them so meticulously and and, and um, with so much. <laughs> but I think more than loving them, I also, it's at, at the time of writing this book, really identified um, with the particular world that they seem to inhabit, which was kind of um, a world of twilight. Like it felt like they just came out in these between lights and, and they, and they were always, um, they're always so attentive and um, just uh, listening for, for danger. And, um, but also just hanging out in your yard, like uh, eating a dandelion, like with the, the stock up to the floof, you know? (laughs) So I think that they're kind of their gentleness, their presumed gentleness, but also they're like, sexuality and also their secretiveness. I, I really appreciate all, all these mystical aspects of them that are also just ordinary. And so it isn't an, an accident that the image that you chose for the cover has the rabbit on the woman's lap. Well, you know, it kind of is a oh, little is. bit an accident because um, I think that the original... I was working with two very different images that were from this artist, and one of them was a like a younger woman's figure covered in um, candle wax, and she was a candelabra. And I thought that would be um, just sort of like um, culturally apropos in a way. And um, then he said it wasn't available. And the other image was actually the same woman, but in a scarf that was polka dotted. And it really reminded me of like um, 1970s Moscow in a way and the teacups and a lot of things that came out that had a lot of sort of orangey polka dots on them. And Anyway, and but it felt wrong, and and finally, I think that I I saw this image. And I thought, what about this one instead? One of my favorite aspects of my cover at this point actually is the fact that the favorite, the movie came out shortly after Without Protection, and so then I feel like the, like an excess, like a like a queenly woman holding a rabbit now has that just another other layers, yeah, even, more so, <laughs> yeah. And then with um, and you write astrology too, mm-hmm, I do, and, and a galactic rabbit was for a while that mm-hmm. was the the 
the name you wrote. Or- I did, yeah. And I think, I mean, I did start writing those um, the project in many ways when I was also working on these books. So it makes sense that I think I just, um, I wanted a, a referential point that I like when things have, you know, when they all kind of web out together. Yeah. And kind of standing nearby the, and appreciating the interconnectedness yeah, exactly. or falling into it or, or so. Um, well, okay, before we get too mm-hmm. far away, let's get back to fairy tales. Okay. And um, would you read one of the poems since we've sure. um, from Without Protection? Sure. So um, this poem is one of the more fairy tale poems in the book. It's called Vasilisa Considers the Dark Path. Everyone knows you can't enter a house with no doors. Slow rot between her throat and heart. It's not darkness that scares her. Bones glint, moonlight and bone sorrow. The house is always spinning. The house wants a song. Sing and it opens. The house is not a woman is not not a woman. It was easy, you know. We sat across from each other for a long time, not watching the TV. She said come closer. And I said, no, you come closer. In touching, we opened a door we could not close and did not want to. I said, sleep in my bed, but I meant tonight, not every night. Still, there she was every night. I just kept sinking to the bottom like a stone. I just lay there wet and without thoughts. In the beginning, a girl was very wise and very beautiful. Good with her hands, she slept, soft-cheeked on a horse's pulse. She knew nothing about animals, only gentleness, a cat's tongue in the milk, lapping. She loved that way, too. I kept calling you. I kept calling you even though I forgot how telephones work, how time, how to make sound. I kept calling you. I would say, I'm nothing. I'm a stone. I'm covered in bad milk. I saw my father's blue, waterlogged body, and I couldn't touch, now untouchable forever. And you would say, oh, it's hot here. I'll come soon. I have to go now. I can't talk too long. I have to conduct this very important interview with these people. They're so old. They could die. I would come, but why is that girl in your bed? Why is she there? What built the house also dug the grave. She sings the song and loves death's hands, how they mind their own business. Thanks, Gala. Thank you. So so with this poem, Mm -hmm. it's... Because there's other Vasilisa poems Mm -hmm. before this, Mm -hmm. right? Vasilisa wants to know what love is. Mm -hmm. and Vasilisa comes to call. These, these are kind of going back towards the beginning mm-hmm. of the book. Um, but then this one considers the dark path. Like this is where things, it also feels where it feels like we've got the fairy tale and this mm-hmm. character, mm-hmm. but also the, the kind of the, the voice of the poet from the other poems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is kind of confusing how I'm trying I've, to put I'm this. On, I'm on your, I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting now. <laughs> when we were talking earlier about mm-hmm. those two, the two manuscripts, right? Mm-hmm. This poem almost feels like it's both of the projects coming mm-hmm. together. Um, where the voice of the other poems that aren't necessarily tagged as the fairy tale poems. So I feel like what's funny is, and what made the, um, the combining of the two manuscripts, um, much more seamless than one might assume is that I, um, the the one with the fairy tales was never just these like like a straight fairy tale voice. And I think it was my intention in writing it that, 
um, I, w- I don't want to say progressive, like it probably wasn't that linear, but that as I kept writing the fairy tales or I worked with them around them, that there would be slippage. And so there wouldn't be this um, clear delineation between the moment when I am sort of um, using a fairy tale to understand memory and identity formation um, that at the same time I would, I would have these moments where it would just be me and that in fact it's like always been me and all versions that I remember of these fairy tales and all versions that I've retold are still through me, you know, so I could reclaim the voice inside of it. And there, there's, um, that's, that's strength that that's there's strength mm-hmm. in that rec- yeah. reclamation. Yeah. As, as there always is in all reclamations, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm doing this yeah. pump into the air now. <laughs> um, I'm just yes. banging the table. <laughs> we, we have all kinds of sounds and happenings happening here in the, the studio. Um, so the form of this, the shape. Mm-hmm. So um, the parts the parts that feel more the, the you, you part mm-hmm. of, of the story of like the uh, mm-hmm. maybe the memory or the identity or, or thinking um, for the poet, they're bounded in parentheses. And mm-hmm. and then the other sections so uh, are um, used space differently. The line is cut and then um, entered again. So visually on the page, it looks really like set apart, though mm-hmm. still together because it's yeah. one poem, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, was that like when you were working with structure? Because you play with different forms mm-hmm. in in the book too. What it looks like? Yeah, I mean, how did I you think, find it? What it I looks think like? that I was very committed. I mean, my like I have commitment issues, so like I'm not going to say that it was continuous, but I was fairly committed to having any of the poems that um, I really more linked to fairy tale in particular have a um, a sort of fractured, splintery form that is um, tight. Like you can see in the text that um, there, you know, the sentences are split, but they're also they have alignment, and or often they do. And that a lot of the more narrative personal stories would either be um, prose blocks or when they weren't because of the because of the project, which I mentioned earlier, that they would just sort of be like a loose fragmentation, that they wouldn't be so tight. And I think fairy tales are really tight. And so that was a part of it. Like I wanted the experience of fairy tale to have a kind of physical structure. And in a way, that was a relief, right? Um all physical structures are can be a kind of relief or something to lean against. Um, and I think that uh, in this particular poem, for me, what I, what I was experiencing was this moment where you have, where you're leaning on a structure and then you are flooded with um, the personal experience, right? Um, and it, it is, in a, I mean, it could have been more flood-like, I guess. Uh, it wasn't very flood-like, but I am a very, um, I'm, a, I'm a person who practices a lot of self-restraint and then also a person who um, has a lot of dissociation stuff. So when things just sort of float in, I still try to kind of get them in a little container so that I can... Um, better control them but so that's my my wandering answer for you yeah yeah that's a well beautiful wandering um and wondering so you mentioned like the personal the personal poem like like 
also saying that they're all personal. Yeah, they're all personal. Um, would you did you, would you want to read one before we go to break the um, because it is September 11th mm-hmm. today and sure and grow, growing up where you did. And- I did. Yeah, I grew up in New York. I was in high school. Um, it was my first day of high school on September 11th. Um, you can, I'll just, to to preface, and um, uh, at this point, people weren't really using cell phones or people who weren't like businessmen weren't using cell phones. And um, basically, there was no way to leave Manhattan and I was in Brooklyn. And so my brother was a cabbie, spent the whole day trying to cross as many bridges as possible because he had no idea what was on the other side, you know? So it's definitely uh, pretty... A wild day for me on the day of, if not after, although I um, wasn't as affected as many of my friends. I think we were all affected, especially in the vitriol that occurred to like many of our brown friends afterward and the kinds of lies they had to lead and the kind of violence that they incurred. So I think there's um, many kinds of experiences that especially New Yorkers, um, got to grow up with beyond the day that it happened um, and witness and, I guess, grieve. But uh, this, this, this poem begins, uh, it has no, the, t- the titles of many of these poems are just the first line. So, high school wasn't always two towers crashing. Girls sunned on cement blocks, a playground between housing projects on the Upper West Side. Our pinhole cameras reeled us in. Time of exposure. Five seconds. Ten. In the dark room, we were the light. Slavia surfaced in her own image. Lipstick Elvis and incarnate lush dark hair pulled back and pompadoured. I rode a stone whale, my crinoline skirt falling in a soft wave over its head. What wasn't dangerous? We had all heard a woman ran in one side of Central Park and did not come out the other. Polish Mike liked to sit at the Juilliard squares, waiting. We'd come over and smoke. You didn't need to know his age. You didn't even need to pay him. My friend gave him head at my 15th birthday party. I don't remember what I saw. Some girl said he spent a lot of time on the swings alone. That was supposed to redeem him. Thanks, Gala. Thank you. Um, Today on Living Writers, Gala Mukomolova, I'm T. Hetzel, Without Protection, the book from Coffeehouse Press. We'll be back. Thank you. I think I feel a little hurt. My fists are turning cold at diamonds when no one told me so much worse. Then 
You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Gala Mukamolova is here without pre- without protection. <laughs> <laughs> I almost got it all out. Um, without protection, out with Coffee House Press. Um, tonight, Gala, you're going to be reading at Crazy Wisdom Bookstore. I am. I am. About seven? Is yeah, that- seven is when I'll be reading there. So if you um, are interested, stop by. If you are somebody who can't make the reading in Ann Arbor on Thursday, that this is a your chance. And, you know, Crazy Wisdom's got a crazy vibe. <laughs> so why not experience it? Maybe they'll have that fluffy lemon cake. It's really good. <laughs> and so w- when you when you were in town, did you also go to Crazy Wisdom for some uh, of like... Yeah. Cause they they do what would you what would you say about the astrology readings and like the different I mean I, I've never done an in-person astrology uh, well that's I, I've never done like a, an audience like I mean I've definitely done one-on-one astrology readings with people but not in a, a text-based way in a natal chart based way but um yeah, I feel like I just spent a lot of time in Crazy Wisdom. First of all, I wrote a lot in Crazy I wrote a lot of this book in Crazy Wisdom. Um, a lot of my um, MFA cohort and, and I would get together there and and just uh, write next to each other, share with each other what we'd written, drink a lot of tea, eat a lot of cake. Um, and I also wrote a couple of essays for Crazy Wisdom. So Crazy Wisdom was probably the first, like their journal was probably one of the first few places to ever publish my prose. Um, And it's some of those pieces have circulated wider than I would have suspected where I would have somebody writing to me about, you know, teaching one of them. Um, so I, I, owe, I owe something to them, I think also for creating space for that and for being um, at, at that juncture, cause I haven't written for them in a long while, but at that juncture, they're really fiscally supportive also. So it felt really great to write something that was exciting and spiritual and creative and then be paid for it. Wow, yes. Yeah, yeah. that feels still somewhat revolutionary. It really somehow. sadly is revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> and and now, so there's the reading tonight at Crazy Wisdom at 7 and then tomorrow, 5.30 at the Helmet, Helmet Stern Auditorium in UMA mm-hmm. uh, with the Zell Visiting Writers Series. Yeah. So two two chances to yeah, see you live and in true. person. Um, and so one of the other hats that you wear is as we mentioned, astrologer, mm-hmm. and, and you now people could find it on nylon. Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you get started with doing that? You know, uh, I will tell you exactly how. Um, it was because of Gia Tolentino. Um, oh. And so I, I think just I have a, a lot of friends um, who know that I know about astrology or talk about it a lot. And Gia and I shared one very good friend whose name is Maya West. And... Oh. Um, 
I think that Gia was working for the hairpin at the time and they were looking for a new astrologer and uh, Maya West had suggested that Gia ask me. And, um, and I thought about it for a bit because it made me nervous. Like I'd never considered sharing that particular part of myself with a large audience before, but um, after some encouragement, I, I stepped into it and for a bit, Gia, I think, was the first person that might have been editing me. But then she left the hairpin and I stayed around there for a while. And then there was just um, there were a lot of different events that occurred. But basically, I kept going with it because it seemed like I had a readership and it also felt like a pleasure. Um, and then I, I started doing because I left the hairpin. I, I put on my own website. Galactic Rabbit. Yeah. And um, where I got my special um, space bunny name. And then I um, did this creative writing project, which is, again, you know, it's like when you leave your MFA program and you are daunted by what you should be writing. And then I was writing these letters, um, these truly just creative, creative writing letters of love letters to uh, people in my life who were different signs. And I was trying my best to weave into those letters information for a general public, right? So I would know about the different transits or whatever that was occurring at the time. But what I would do was I would continuously just try to write a small prose piece. So I'd write like 12 small prose pieces a month. And actually it was killing me because I felt so... Um, uh, charged with a kind of um, a wisdom and accuracy, right? And and at the same time to make it beautiful because it was a creative writing project above all. And it, it would take me so long. I would be up all these nights and, you know, I wasn't getting paid for it. Um, I did it myself, although eventually I would have people just like sending me money um, or donations, but it was, you know, never more than like enough for a couple of meals, which is fantastic. <laughs> but also um, when I got approached to write for Nylon, that was uh, a game changer for me because it was uh, it felt like a relief to write for a more commercial syndicate so that I didn't have the same kind of uh, creative writing pressure that I felt when working for my own website and writing these like elaborate queer prose pieces. <laughs> so um, and I actually got approached um, through a tree of different lesbian women who I'd known. And so for me, it was a really exciting thing to come under Gabrielle Corn's team because it it was just so exciting to work for a femme and and then I would come in to do videos and everybody was like in the community who was with us and I was like oh this is a great office so I got very very lucky yeah that's my astrology journey life <laughs> It seems like also that there's in the writing of it in this the most latest the September edition it's it there's like a tenderness about it and mm -hmm. encouraging um is that part of like you know what you like do you I guess there's a responsibility because people are yes. reading this and and think maybe well nobody wants to be discouraged <laughs> would be, yeah I would be a terrible astrologist apparently yeah. Yeah. I just think I mean I I do discourage people from doing I mean from reiterating certain patterns that may be very um common to their signs sometimes but I also think that um, it's not that the world has gotten more difficult, but the world has, um, like the difficulties of the world are more apparent and more visible to a lot more people right. because of the kind of media that we have now. And I think that 
people need encouragement and people need to have hope where they can get it. So I'm happy to say something that will steer them in that direction. And and connecting this back to without protection, mm-hmm. um, I feel like the experience after reading the book, I have also a heightened sense of awareness for women mm-hmm. and wanting to not have the feeling like without protection, like uh, young women, especially walking around feeling this way. There's mm-hmm. something about the experience of like the memories, the memory and identity um, mm-hmm. with um surrounded with the fairy tale right. um, aspect. Well, I mean, I think that this, I don't know if we'll get to this in two minutes, but I do feel like um, one thing that I can speak to about this title that's only one of its truths is that um, feeling like you don't have protection can also just be a feeling. And um, I know that I'm lucky enough to say that for many reasons, including just being a white, able-bodied woman, but, um, and, but I also think that I believe in something bigger than me. And, um, and for me, that has become a kind of protection for me, which, uh, I think I've always had. So it's not that I necessarily wrote the title believing that I was without protection wholly as much as I believed that that is how one feels when they are in a place of pain or grief or loss um, or trying to grapple with being um, sexed as female in this world. And I think that, um, and therefore a sexual object, but I don't, I don't think that um, whether or not you believe in anything, I don't believe that you're without protection. I think that there is something that protects us. And I also don't think that that means that we're protected from harm or even from death. I don't believe that there, that's the end of the story. And I think that I'm, I'm humble about what I don't know is on the other side. And I think it could be better. <laughs> so um, perhaps going over there is a gift, but not, not for the people who incur the loss, of course, but maybe for some, for the people who are gone, or that's what I would hope. Gala, thanks so much for talking today. It's been great talking with you today on on Living Writers, Gala Mukomolova, um, her book, Without Protection, out with Coffee House Press. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, thanks to Tex for engineering today, uh, to Claire and Daly at Coffee House Press. Um, thanks to Ashley at Zell, and thanks to Frank Uli, uh for show post-production. Um, Without Protection, Gala Mukomolova's book. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. If I don't owe you a favor, you don't know me. I don't believe we've ever even met. If there's a God in heaven, you can show me. Then I guess I should admit I lost the bet. There are moments I could hold.
There's a road left behind me that I'd rather not speak of And a hard one ahead of me too I love you, whatever you do But I got a life to live to I never met a morning I could get through With nothing on my breath to hold the night And I never said I'm sorry, but I meant to I never met a coward I don't like There are reasons why my body stays in motion But at the moment only demons come to mind There are days when I could walk into the ocean With no one else but you to leave behind Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Daily Sports Report here on 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Nick Hornberg, and joining me from behind the glass, making his return to the studio, Andy Laidlaw is back. Andy, how you been? Fantastic. I am so pumped to be back at U of M covering Michigan athletics. Fall sports can be awesome. Football, volleyball, soccer. It's good to be back. It's good not to be the newbie anymore. New guys, have fun, enjoy. It's awesome. Besides that, let's roll. Speaking of which, uh, new guys, Zach Corson, Jack Manka, and Hunter Kemble joining us. Uh, gentlemen, how you doing? Pretty Happy good, you know. Here. Great, great. We're excited. 